Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earl. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 66, and I'm Amanda Earl. Today I'm with uh, Richard Capener, the host of the Babel Tower Notice Board. Hi, Richard. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start by reading the intro, uh, the uh, the just a little bit about uh, the Babel Tower Notice Board, and it comes from uh, comes from the site itself. I will put up the links to uh, everything to the to everything that we, I can remember that we mentioned. And uh, also definitely I'll put the links up to the site. So the Babel Tower Notice Board is an online journal from England. Uh, and, and what you write here is, while our interests start with poetry and prose throughout the avant-garde's history, we celebrate any act of writing intended as revelry, dissent, transgression, heresy, pleasure, or play. So that's the, that's the intro for the Babel Tower Notice Board and or the, 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 the bio- biography of the, <laughs> of the, uh, of the journal, and uh, then we'll just. Do, I also want to read your uh, your uh, uh, your bio from the site as well. Richard Capener's writing has been featured in, or is forthcoming from, sublunary edition subscriptions, Street Cake, Overground Underground, Lemon Curd Magazine, and the Crested Tit Collective's Rewilding, an Echo Poetic Anthology, among others. He can be found at Twitter.com, and I'll put that up. It's Richard Capener three. I guess there's two more Richard Capeners on there. There's two more in the world, unfortunately. So on the on the third. All right, so I'm going to jump right in uh, with the questions that I've gotten here, and I've, 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 we've gone over them, so we're both on the same page, literally. <laughs> what made you decide to start a journal? So I, I had had a pretty um, standard journey through through poetry, or, or what I would call standard. So um, I got into poetry, went through the, the sort of usual channels of an open mic uh, and workshops. Um, as well as sort of more sort of formally organized readings. Um, and I had been doing a lot of work in um, just the community around um, uh, community events, putting on workshops for adults and, and children and um, senior citizens. So I always, through that, felt a pull towards um, curation. So not necessarily editing, although I think one learns those skills through things like creative writing workshops, but certainly curation was a, something I, I liked and enjoyed doing. Um, then um, I had a sort of series of drastic life changes, sort of moving from my hometown to where I am now in uh, Bristol, which is um, in the southwest of England, if, if people don't, don't know. And I had kind of been uprooted from my um, writing community in, in Gloucestershire. Um, and as a result, I kind of had to establish myself a bit more in this city. Ultimately, when, like, when all that is said and done, about nine years passed and I kind of had a, a stable salary <laughs> and a stable roof over my head and I could afford three meals a day. So all that, all that good stuff. And I was still sort of writing during that time. But um, 
I, I just wasn't engaging in a writing community as I had been for the, the many years prior to, to the wilderness period, I guess. Um, and I got back into poetry community um, specifically. And I was catching up a lot with uh, the presses, the journals that had been um, you know, starting in, in my absence. <laughs> and um, there's a podcast that started during lockdown called, uh, it's by a British poet uh, who, who writes under the name Serge Neptune. Um, and he has a podcast called Neptune's Glitterhouse for Wayward Poets. Oh, that's, uh, which, a, that's a great name. It, it's a great name, and people can find it on YouTube if they um, if they in. give that a search. But ultimately, there was a uh, a reading uh, from Matthew Haig, who was the first poet or one of the first poets we featured on Babel, um, and he did cut-ups of naked lunts with imdb plot synopses of golden girls um and i guess just to add a little bit more context around this i was finding a little bit of trouble finding homes for my poems and he prefaced this this reading of those uh, cut-ups um by saying that he was struggling to find a home for for them and um, anyone who's seen Babel or, or follows Babel will um, know that uh, the body and pleasure and revelry is kind of important topics for, the, for me and for the journal. And so it's not too inappropriate to say that um, it was early in lockdown. I was going to a poetry reading. Um, it was the end of my working week. So perhaps I had drunk a bit more than I usually would um, sort of on my own at least, uh, not sort of incapacitated, but uh, a lack of inhibitions perhaps. And um, so when, when Matt said that he was struggling to find a publisher for these poems, I um, sort of said, oh, God damn it, I'll publish them. Um, and I DM'd him on, on Twitter to uh, inform him of such. And um, I woke up the next morning and sort of uh, realized I needed to, to um, honor this. Um, so that, that was how the, that was how it started. Sort of the consequences of a literary one night stand in a way, <laughs> you wake up and the next morning you're, yeah. you're suddenly with a magazine that you had no idea you were going to get involved <laughs> with. And, and, and what, uh, why online over print or, or has, is print still a possibility for anything that you're going to be doing with Babel Tower? Um, so oh, it's two things really, I mean, online, I find it more freeing. Um, if I, if I rattle off names that are on the website, it's, 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 it's all literally free. So people can just go and, and find them. But we, we published a piece by way of example by a uh, cat Chong yeah. called, yeah, Dear Letter 32. Yeah, I love that. Um, I love those Say again. I love those uh, that letter, uh, dear letter thirty two. It's great. Me too. It's um, yeah. it's extraordinary, and I, I think one of the key things about that piece is it needed to be presented in that font on A four sheets of paper, and other if if either of those things had changed, then it changes the meaning of the piece. Like it needed to have that sense of facsimile, and I think it needed to have that sense of being pulled straight out of a typewriter. Yeah. 
um, and, and the, and the text crushed now. together too. The way that the way the lines crushed together as you're going down each one. Yeah. So you can't read everything necessarily easily, right? It's it's not an easy. If you mm -hmm. try to read everything, you have to kind of pause and oh, and you, so things jump out like different things jump out. I find ah, I love it. It's great. It's incredible. So yeah, so it's it, it's it's typewritten and some of the words merge together. As, as you just mentioned, the the lines are a bit squashed. Um, and uh, at, at some points it's blurry so a print journal wouldn't wouldn't allow us to have that freedom um and it, i think the, the bound object whether it's books or magazines or, or or what have you um are very good at presenting collections of short texts so they're very very good i find at presenting um the lyric poem as we might understand it commonly or a flash fiction. I don't think it's very strong at presenting pieces like cats or presenting perhaps some, some visual poems. Yeah. Anything um, it's very difficult, for instance, to get, I, I do a lot of color visual poetry and it's very hard to get in North America. It's almost impossible to get uh, work done in color. It's easier in Europe to get stuff done in color, but mm. Yeah, um, as I think being online, it's, it, it cuts out a lot of those issues. Yeah. Um, and a website continues to be good for lyric poetry and short fiction. So yeah. it covers all of those grounds, I think. The, I've had this conversation a couple of times with friends and there does sometimes seem to be a question beneath the question of, can you make money? from it i mean that, that's what they're asking me when i, I when, when they say <laughs> no no i know you but um but um, all of my friends are terribly shallow human beings unfortunately so um they're not they're lovely but or they um, money like everybody else <laughs> yeah indeed but i think um i was listening to because we we do this newsletter every fortnight yeah. Um, and there's there's recommended reading in that. And I was listening to a Charles Bernstein interview that I had listened to a lot because it's great. I hadn't listened to it in a few years. So I remembered the broad strokes. I didn't remember the details of it. And in that interview, he's, he talks about uh, the poetic community. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how it isn't actually fragile because the infrastructure is quite strong. And by infrastructure, he defines that as um, small presses and journals, as well as um, readings. And so using, using those as an example, he, he, he makes the argument that um, although the poetry community is very, very small and it looks inconsequential, um, it's actually quite robust. And he goes on to place systems of value onto onto that um as opposed to monetary value right and i think that um is perhaps another reason why i'd want to stick with online i can keep it all free and i could insist that the value system is placed on community and not subscribers um and not having not having to please anyone um, but being able to um, let Babel be this kind of anarchic um, scattergun um, 
journal. I think the the term I use in the in the first editorial was was to was like like a, like an anti journal almost. Yeah. Um, and to have that be the value, and not necessarily have to um, rely on you know being paid. I mean, if if anything happens to my job, um, I might consider a sort of a patron scheme, um, but. I've budgeted in such a way that I'd have to, if things will have to get pretty far down the line for me to um, consider that. So um, no, all, all online, all free and just have that, have that range and have that freedom that that print can't offer. And what uh, you, you, you talk about this on the, on the site, but uh, where did the name come from? I, I tried to, cause you, you sent me this question before I tried to find this for the interview and I, I, I couldn't, um, but there's this thing that I think it was Jacket 2. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have been when Jacket was still going around. But uh, they, they put out um, Bernstein's and Andrew's list of alternative names for Language Magazine. Okay. And it was just pages and pages of typewritten text. Um, and I'm... This was over 10 years ago I saw this, so I'm going from memory, but my, my recollection of it was some of these names were deduced through anagram, some of them was stream of consciousness perhaps, some of it was found language. Um, and um, I was thinking back to that when I was trying to think of a name for the, for the journal. And I, I also had heard about a a um, practice that some business business types do of um, they write down a hundred business ideas a day um, with the expectation that most of them will be crap, but uh, because they're writing a hundred, they're bound to hit on something good eventually. So I think with those two things in mind, it seemed a lot more sensible to do that um, than just sort of sitting around worrying about what I'm going to call the journal. So I did that. Um, and I hit on notice board uh, and I liked the um, provincial community yeah. kind of feel of that. Um, I didn't sort of flesh out any values at the time, but it, it speaks to me of that sort of community vibe that we're, we're trying to go for. Um, and also I started to obsess a little bit about what, what even is a notice board. It's this, um, yeah. It's a tip on the iceberg of an organization. And it, um, it's something very, very small that represents something quite, quite large. Um, and potentially if, if it's placed in a, in a community context, as opposed to a business context, it's uh, a network of different texts and different languages and, and different uh, social groups. And I really, really enjoyed that vibe. Um, so I, I knew I wanted something, something notice board. Um, and in terms of Babel Tower, um, so I mean, first things first, I, I was raised and subsequently escaped from a, you know, a reasonably intense religious environment. Yeah. So I, um, I can't pretend that, you know, this doesn't have an effect on inversion of narratives and yeah. uh, wanting to... Uh, sort of and heresy you know so i i can't um pretend that that doesn't you know babel tower doesn't come from that but um i'm a big mike kelly fan 
And I remember reading um, books at uni. I was reading a lot of the books that were out of print um, when I was at, at uni, because uh, the, the, the library had them. And it turns out um, a lot of his early performance pieces um, were built around the idea of Babel Tower and that mythology and, and uh, the fragmentation of language. And that was the first time I had seen anyone um, creatively engage with Babel Tower as a, as a mythos. Um, and that, that always stuck with me. Um, and so kind of that with the notice board um, idea generator thing sort of came together and uh, it seemed like a reasonably um, yeah, okay name. So I, I ran with that. It, it was, uh, I think, I, I can't remember how I first, I mean, I first happened upon um, the launch of the mag, hearing about the magazine just before it was starting. People were, were tweet, retweeting it on uh, tw uh, the information on Twitter. And yeah, I remember being quite attracted to the, the name already interests me. So it, it works. It's successful, I think, as a way of getting it, a little attention to the, making people ask questions and want to find out more. At least that worked for me. Uh, so you started, uh, can you talk about the uh, journal's relationship to and your interest in the avant-garde a little bit? Sure. It's a, it's a lifelong interest. Yeah. Um, growing up in Gloucester, which is uh, another city in the southwest, um, you had two options as a, as a teenager. Um, you were either into heavy metal or um, hip-hop. Right. And you know, there were, naturally there were bits and pieces I liked of these, but I ultimately found them quite... Um, performative in a very unreflective way um like i i I'm, i get very uncomfortable still around um a heuristic and um any sense of unreflection is that a word any sense of something not being reflected on makes me feel very uneasy and so um i think my I wouldn't have used this language, but my, my teenage criticism at the time was, um, you know, there's, there's no real reflection as to why they're dressing this way, as to why they're acting this way, as to why they have these political values that seem uh, implicit in the, in the music. Um, and I also didn't relate to that kind of hyper-masculinity that's on display in a lot of these, these types of music. And so I think that's, that's one reason why I got into um, techno. Um, I mean, this is this has changed a lot um, since the the British rave scene has kind of turned into EDM. But the the criticism that was um, launched at techno back in the '90s and, and early noughties, it, it, it's faceless. Um, you know, it's just this um, music without any sense of identity. It's just mechanics and. Uh, I think, uh, looking back, I related to it strongly because um, it didn't have that performative element, it seemed. Um, it didn't have that um, constant uh, reinforcing of one's identity, I guess. Um, if you get into techno, you have multiple you have multiple inroads to the avant-garde. It's just it's very closely related. So 
um, Throbbing Gristle, who wrote British Performance Group. Um, Who's on your on your playlist for your Spotify playlist for the for the magazine? So uh, yes, I they are. Um, oh, cool! I was listening to it before um, <laughs> before this interview to get in the mindset. So it's had some use, but um, but yeah, Throbbing Gristle were a performance group um, in the late seventies, and um, I think they were going around before that. But I think they had their um, rise to. Th- fame um in the in the late 70s uh, they had multiple different projects <laughs> and um they they got the ball rolling with industrial music which crosses over into techno even though they were more of an avant-garde group um apex twin did a ton of piano pieces influenced by john cage yeah so that was my inroad to um contemporary composition and um I'm sure there are others. Like if you if you trace the history of electronic music back far enough, you end up in um, experimental radio and music concrete of, of uh, the early 20th century. So um, my interest in the avant-garde very much came through music, and that was my punk rock. Um, that was my um, teenage descent, um, and and how I sort of started to learn about. Um, I think these things like heavy metal or hip hop give teenagers uh, a way to express alienation, but also um, it helps them form adult opinions as well. Uh, And that's what the avant-garde gave me. So naturally when um, I came to the journal, uh, I had to frame it that way. I mean, the the way it was in the intro you read earlier, but um, the way I try and frame it is we're interested in all of these writings from the avant-garde's history. There's no pressure for anyone submitting to us to identify with that label. In fact, I think most, um, if not all of the writers we've published um, wouldn't call themselves avant-garde and might actually be against the term. Um, There's certainly stuff we've published that I wouldn't call avant-garde. There's stuff that I would call avant-garde that perhaps people wouldn't. So, it's a way to uh, bring, at least bring back a dialogue around what the avant-garde is and um, to bring back um, thinking around it. Because I, I do feel that it's perhaps seen as a bit of a, perhaps a joke or a bit um, arty or uh, elitist or, um, or what have you. So it's a way for me to um, to champion it because ultimately I think we need it. I, I think we need it in, in, in this yeah. time. <laughs> we do. We need, I said, especially in this time, we need it. We need all the things we need. Uh, we need uh, the theater of the absurd. We, we need mm-hmm. realism. We need, we need everything to, we need Dadaism and in its way um, reclaimed maybe a, without so much uh, patriarchy, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, we, all, we need everything to be reclaimed in a, in a non-patriarchal way, I think is, is what mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, be- because the avant-garde can um, challenge social structures and that's what it's very good at um, in a way that nothing else can, um, as opposed to seeing the avant-garde exclusively in terms of um, the cutting edge which I think a lot of people do see it as, and I'm a little bit reticent about that. 
um, certainly there was a lot of critique of the past when it came to avant-garde movements. Yeah. And there was also um, a concern about the modern world and what the world might become. Um, however, I think to claim the avant-garde is, is, is purely something that's essentially a type of sci-fi is, is, is reductive. Um, and especially with say Dadaism, that we, in some interpretations of Dadaism, we can understand it to be an anti-war movement. Like honestly, like that's what it was. Yeah. Um, in, 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 Hugo, in the Hugo Ball sense. Um, whereas if you look at Ulipo, it was a gentleman's club and they like math, you know, like it, <laughs> you, you get all, you get this whole range in the avant-garde. It, it's not just a, um, it's not just a um, very macho um, intellectual type of sci-fi. <laughs> there you go. So you, so uh, you started in, um, in August and and you've had 13 contributors if I counted right you've had 13 contributors including the latest one so far mm -hmm. so uh, and you said you started with commissioned pieces what were some of your considerations for who to invite at first what or what type of work you wanted sure well um blame Matt Haig because he read he out those, those cups um drunken, the drunken uh, one yeah <laughs> you're drunken I was I was but um think I mean I thought the poems were very good. I, I wasn't so drunk that, oh, no, no. <laughs> that I would just take anything. Um, Afterwards, it was regret. No, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. No, it really wasn't. It was excitement. In fact, um, I don't know how useful this is for the people of, um, for, for the good people of Canada because uh, he, he self-published this, but he just released those cut-ups in a pamphlet um, and, and self-published it. So I'm, I'm looking over at my desk at it now, but... Um, so yeah, if bully him on Twitter, if if um, you you want a copy of that. But um, in any case, he released. Um, yeah, he, he sorry. Yeah, he read those cut-ups on uh, Glitterhouse. So I I commissioned those off the basis on on the basis of that. Uh, with Vic Shirley, I I know her. We used to work together, oddly enough. So um, I really like the ghosts. That was really great for me actually because I. I, that's why I ended up sending you the thing I sent you because uh, mm -hmm. um, it was exactly the sort of thing that I, I, I was doing in a way too, with the way she, she did that. So I appreciated it very much. It was the first thing I read. Yeah. Actually. People responded really well to that. The, the thing I liked about it, I mean, she's doing her PhD in surrealism. So unsurprisingly, but it, it is such a good um, take on surrealism. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do worry that, uh, the the child cynic surrealism takes precedence some of the time, and it's just about um, being a little bit random. And if we go back to if we go back to what surrealism was, it, it's about manifesting the unconscious. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, and and also manifest manifesting the unconscious for um, political aims. But I wanted to um, critique the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Um, by by manifesting the unconscious, so that's what I feel Vic pieces returns us to. A uh, Vic's piece returns us to, um, but that's a that's a rant in any case. But um, yeah, so I, I knew Vic. I liked what he was about, um, and so I just wanted to tell on board. 
as, as early as possible. Uh, with Katz and Bryony's piece, they are part of um, the Crested Tick Collective, who is a collective um, formed at Royal Holloway uh, University in London. And they, um, they frame themselves in terms of eco-poetics, but they also explore uh, the queer space and the transgendered space um, alongside the ecological discourse. And uh, they had, so Bryony's book, Dorothy, uh, published through Broken Sleep Books, remains my favourite book of this year. I, I, it's, it's just incredible. But um, so I, I wanted her on board for that reason, but also I had gotten this poem um, accepted in, in their anthology so I was a bit more curious about what they were up to. Um, after, after Dorothy, Bryony published a pamphlet called Microspordial through <laughs> um, Samson Lowe Press um, and they and she did a book launch for that where um, if I call the if I abbreviate the crested tit collective to the tits, that's what they call themselves. So yeah, um, yeah I know that, that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I went to the pamphlet launch, um, and that's when I sort of first saw what the the rest of the tits were doing, and um, I saw Cat read Dia La Terra thirty two then, and it just blew me away. I was just, I just thought this is fantastic. Um, for, I mean, I can, I can rant at length about why, why it's so fantastic, but ultimately it, it really, really took me. And um, so I, I contacted them to ask if Dia La Terra was um, available and it, and it was, um, and I, I wanted, as I said, I wanted Bryony on board because of um, the impact that Dorothy had on me. Um, with James Knight, he um, he was doing the rounds with the with visual poetry because I think he had yep. just had Chimera released through Pentarac Press. Right. Um, he was starting to um, he had started posting prose poems on Twitter. Um, and so that's, you know, I asked him, can I have some, um, and I, I did want visual poetry represented. Um, so that's why I asked Astra. I've never heard her name read out loud. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to go for it and say, uh, Astra Papakristadulu. And if that's wrong, then apologies to, to her, but, um, I love her work. And when it came to, um, when it came to, uh, wanting visual poetry represented, it, it had to be her. It's just a, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Sure. Um, and who else was the commissioned? Uh, Barney Ashton Burke. Um, he did a pamphlet called. Um, I taught. I, 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 I have. Um, uh, I have American poetry friends, and um, a pamphlet is a chapbook. I had to explain yep. that. To them. I know. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I learned that a while back, so I'm I'm good with uh, good with the, good with the lingo. But uh, yeah, for for those who will eventually be listening at home, yes, pamphlet equal chapbook. <laughs> yeah. So um, Barney had a released a pamphlet called um, Cafe Caput, and that really blew me away. 
Um, and also, if you read his pieces, he, he's the most fable poet you can get. Like, he, it's kind of... Uh, <laughs> say again? Fabulicious. Fabulicious. He's he's fantastic, but um, fantastic. <laughs> he, um, but yeah, his poems are very much about a celebration of the body. Mm. As a celebration of the body, they're very, very linked to language, and uh, one of the um, exciting things about that about that pamphlet is, um, I feel through the body, he's he's finding new, new expressions and new structures of language. Like, I, I don't know how else I can say it. And that's really exciting coming from an experimental background. Um, even though um, his influences are ordered and, and wild and keys. So, um, so it, it's, yeah. So I just wanted uh, him on board. I, I feel like I'm missing somebody, but I don't think, I don't think I am. Um, I mean, I, I published a couple of submissions as well, yeah. um, amidst the commissions, but I'm just going to go to the website and have a look. Um, I really liked, I liked uh, Barney's work a lot. And I, I said on Twitter that his, um, I have a, a, a poet uh, pal, uh, Marcus McCann, who's a Canadian hmm. and a lawyer actually. And I really, their sound play was so, it was so like, it really, Barney's work reminded me a lot of Marcus's. And as soon as I, I, I said that, Marcus not only bought a copy of the pamphlet, but he, or, cool. I, but he also bought one for me because I was saying I'm too broke to buy things these days. So that was a nice, uh, that was an added benefit to putting them together. So. You'll, you'll love it. It's, a, it's an amazing pamphlet. I mean, talking about his, his sound play, there are moments in a pamphlet where he's rhyming um, a word at the end of a line with a word at the beginning of a line and the masculine rhymes to, to use that language. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> yeah. and it's a, a lot, some of the rhymes are punctuated by exclamation marks and it's like things that you're not really allowed to do in lyric poetry now because it, like some of the patterns of rhyme and internal rhyme he's using, it's, it could have come out of Dr. Zeus, right, frankly, <laughs> but, um, which, is, which is its own type of heresy. But because he's using it in such a um, flamboyant and um, just, you know, loud way, it becomes really original and really exciting. So I, um, you'll, you'll, you'll be all over the pamphlet. I think you'll love it. I love the one. I love the poems on the on the on the site on, in the magazine. So I'm already I'm already I'm already converted. So there you go. I'm a Barney uh, cult follower. I think already. <laughs> cool. He needs a. I feel like he needs a, a strong cult follow, uh, following in Canada. So yes, I, I think you can start that. All right, we'll, we'll start it over here. So you also, in now, you, so you start to, while well, you've been inviting unsolicited submissions for a while, how's the submission process going so far? Are you getting a lot of submissions and uh, um, any already published or forthcoming work that took you by surprise and allow you to discover someone you didn't know about? Sure, so we, um, I was worried that, you know, when the journal launched, nobody would <laughs> nobody would submit. So what I did about a month before we launched, because um, I knew I had about a month and a half of commissioned work, because I opened this um, rogue rogue submissions period, and um, I just said, you know, no guidelines, just send me whatever you want. 
uh, and anything I don't accept, I'll give feedback on. Um, which that's a, I, uh, <laughs> that's a rash promise. <laughs> yeah, and it was exhausting because because it was exhausting. I had tons of people respond to that, um, mm -hmm. and I also got some really exciting work. The first person to respond was a, a young poet by the name of Neve Haran, who I put out last Friday, I think. Um, and um, when when they sent me the um, the poems that, that they sent me, um, that was very exciting because it was just exactly what I wanted to what I wanted to take on. Um, you know, they are they've had publications, but they're they're an unknown poet. Um, and I found those poems to be so original and so um, just, you know, no matter what text I compared them to, mm -hmm. I later realized I was wrong. You know, like it was just, um, I just found them like they, they slipped through all of these definitions. So visceral and, too. I found them to be quite visceral, yeah. which I love. I love that. Me too. Um, visceral, that is in a very different way to Barney's because I think with, with Barney's pieces, he's so, the tone of those poems are so loud um, that the body really comes across, not to mention all of the sexual descriptions yeah. that he's, he's going through. With Neve's pieces, they, um, like when I first read them, I was thinking of George Oppen almost, like this, this idea of a verse that is very, very, um, material and very very tactile so it's visual in its sense of language but also with with their description of the body um it's repressed is the wrong word but it's it's very guttural mm -hmm. um it's very um guttural. <laughs> yeah i think so there's stuff in there about bowels um there's stuff in there about um the eczema on their scalpel. Uh, there's stuff in there about um, having to make their way through a swamp of spliffs, and it's it's just it's very very bodily in in a in in, in that sense. Um, but Neve's poetry really really took me by surprise, uh, and I'm and I'm sure there's also a a personal relevance here because it was the first submission uh, unsolicited submission Babel had, but. Um, that that really sideswiped me. Um, on Friday, at the time of recording, we're publishing a, a Canadian poet by the name of Amanda Earl. Um, <laughs> who's that? That's who's that? Um, <laughs> and so that's very uh, to to get to publish that is very exciting because I what I feel about that piece is it has that sense of I mean you're you're appropriating an erotic text, but. Yeah. You're um, pairing that, I felt, with uh, a very a physicality of language, uh, which I appreciated, um, and is is very very much what what Babel is about, or certainly one of the things Babel is about. I've paired you with a young poet by the name of Leah Butler, who um, is sort of doing the rounds with uh, online journals in. Um, in England, and she's um, launching her own journal with Jack Oxford called Full House Lit Mag, uh, which is now closed for submissions, but they're, they're definitely one to check out. Um, 
on the strength of her work. Uh, full, full House, Lit Mag. So Full House is in poker. All right, I'll write that down. Um, but what the piece that she's doing, uh, sorry, the, that, that, um, the piece that she gave us that um, will be published alongside yours is um, similar in its sense of the body and sexual play, um, but she's doing it in a very uh, visual and outwardly expressive way. Mm. Um, it, this will make sense when people see the piece, but the language is, is all over the page and this sort of matches a type of uh, sexual expression that is being um, articulated in the, in the poem. So I was very, very excited to uh, be able to put those two pieces together. Um, it was one of those nice coincidences. I, I do find that there are a lot of uh, uh, connections between what's like between some of the pieces that have been published, things that have been published so far. So for instance, I found uh, this isn't something we've discussed, but I was going through again, going through and reading everything. And so I don't know if it's pronounced Gemma or Gemma. Um, Gemma uh, Elliot, I think you're going to say. Yeah. Gemma Elliot, um, her, uh, the natural bodies piece. I thought there was connections mm -hmm. there from her piece to the notes that you wrote, written in the in the current newsletter, the most recent newsletter with the body and the idea of unwriting language mm -hmm. by Kathy Acker, and then um, and then uh, Divya's work on difference. I found that uh, she writes, mm -hmm. say the word poem. It, I may mean this thing you imagine. You know, I thought that that there was one connection there, and then again with Gemma, the fable-like fairy tale elements of James Knight's *The Bird King* and Max Vivo's *Aesop* (2020). I thought those were all sort of connected. And then we had, uh, and then with the editor, the guest editor, uh, editorial Lydia Hunot's wonderful piece *Notes on the Abandoned Women's Laboratory*, and Barney again with the sort of again cottaging, which is a word I didn't know I learned right mm. from. Lydia's piece and the sort of the, the shame of uh, the idea of shame desire as well. And so I did find there was, a, there was a lot of really interesting connections between like they kind of reverberated off each other. And I'm really interested by how you describe pairing poems together. Like I, I, I didn't realize how mindfully you made those decisions about putting out, first of all, you put out two at once, but you don't put out like say 10 or, or you don't put out like 20 poems in one issue as, as some, some people do when they put out, but you put them out gradually over time. And it makes it, it makes it, first of all, it makes it a lot easier to read and not be overwhelmed at once by and I, like you can actually kind of concentrate on the work, but also the fact that you're mindfully pairing them is an interesting thing. It's like a little couplet. It's, it's mm. very, Thing to do so what made sure. you where did you get that or how did you decide on that method of uh of presenting um, the work well i so i accepted your piece about i think maybe a month ago maybe a bit right. longer um and once i figured out how to read the uh, the email <laughs> say again once i figured out how to read where the i don't know what was wrong i couldn't figure out it's very strange i couldn't figure out i could not see and i i was about to like I, I couldn't figure out where the email submission was, and I don't know why it took me so long to read. It was there in plain sight, but I could not see it. It was, I guess I was mm. having, I, I'm turning 57 in a couple of weeks. Maybe that's why, I don't know. But uh, yeah, like three. Oh, it's coming back to me now. Yeah. yeah. You, you had struggle finding the actual email address <laughs> itself, didn't you? Yeah, I remember now. Three people tweeted me about that privately. <laughs> it's right there, Amanda. <laughs> well, you've got your back covered by the sounds of it. If, if three people are. Oh, yeah, nice. getting in touch nice. with you to tell you where it is so it's all good but, um, 
Yeah, so I accepted your month, um, your your piece about I think maybe a month ago, and Leah's piece maybe a, a couple of weeks before that. So the pairing wasn't intentional, but now it's been a month. Now, now a month has passed. I can see it. Okay. So um, the actual uh, pairing of things and the, the reverberations. I mean, we we have broad um, broad themes that that, I'm, that that we're interested in, like the body, like play like community, yeah. like uh, polyculture, which is a, a term I much prefer over inclusivity and um, mm. uh, things like that. Um, however, all of the stuff that looks clever is really just me dicking about, honestly, like a lot of, um, a lot of the reasons why play is so important for me it's a form of thinking in and of itself um and in fact um the whole reason the notice board uh the the the, the newsletter came about was purely because i thought of uh friends of babel tower and that amused me and then a whole newsletter just ended up being built around that so in terms of pairings um there's no conscious thought it's purely accident it's pure play purely um, comes from a it, it comes from a place of joy um, and as a, as a token it makes me look clever but it's really not that at all um, or not not conscious at all but um, the by contrast I'm publishing something by um, I'm, I'm gonna forget her surname so I'll just bring it up it's a it's by um, it's a poem by Josh Orsot shop and Nora something, if I can find her correctly. Um, Nora Blas- Blasksock, I think it's called. Uh, apologies if Nora listens to this, but um, the piece she's given us uh, is very, very small. Um, I think it's six lines from memory. It's a uh, it, it's a lyric poem. It's um, it's it's you know it's not offending anyone. It's a very straightforward narrative. It, it's not necessarily something people might associate with Babel, yeah. um, but I found it um, very subtle in its in its subversion of um, patriarchal narratives um, because it is just not the sort of thing I ever expected to publish. I've, I've paired that with Josh Orsop's pieces, which are these um, extremely fragmented, um, you know, poems that go on page after page and in a good way. Um, there, there is a narrative thread through them, but um, ultimately the, the syntax is very, very unusual. Um, it's something that, I mean, he's doing his PhD in, um, J.H. Prinz, so if people are familiar with Prinz's work, it's, um, they can expect that, that form of language, even though there's a, um, there's a narrative thread through Josh's work. Um, being able to um, put, just work together, that was such a strong contrast, is also something I'm interested in because of this sense of polyculture and diversity and um, anarchy. Right. So yeah, you were talking about the editorial, moving on to another subject. You have your own editorial from August the 21st, 
mm-hmm. uh, where you lay out principles and thoughts and concerns about what you're trying to do. And then you have Lydia, is it who not? Is that how you pronounce your name? How not? I say I say who not. Um, I don't know if um, if 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 that's correct. But. I have to ask it. But uh, wonderful. So her, I love that piece on the abandoned women's lavatory on Hol- Holborn Street, and mm-hmm. with just photos, it was just I I thought it was amazing. So was that something you solicited? It was. Um, I wanted to sort of keep up the pace of the editorials. I didn't want it just to be my. You know, there's nothing more depressing than one blog post, you know. So um, I wanted to. Um, to add to that as quickly as possible. It was always the intention to open up that space to guests um, anyway. So I, um, I knew, knowing that the, the work she does on her website, um, Lit Bitch, um, I can't remember the exact um, URL, but I think there's a couple of Lit Bitches around, but um, if you Google Lit Bitch, Lydia Hunat, you'll, you'll, you'll find her. The, the link is at the bottom of her piece on Babel, but yeah. Um, because of sort of being a, an admirer of that site, and I had had some Twitter conversations about Kathy Acker, who is a yeah. an idol of mine, and and I know that Olivia's a fan. Um, and we also spoke about Adoni Bellamy a, a couple of times, right? Um, who um, is someone I try to read. I mean, it's hard to find her books in England because um, they're, they're, they're so um, often out of print, a lot of them. But um, but um, she's certainly someone I'm, I'm interested in and I know that Lydia is as well. Um, so because I had had those dialogues, uh, th- those discussions with Lydia, I was eager to have her on board and to have her, um, have her presence there. She um, said, sort of, would you be interested in, in this piece? Um, and I was just, yeah, absolutely, it's, it's fantastic. Um, it speaks to, um, I felt that it, it speaks to uh, the wider narratives in in Britain, not just political narratives like uh, Brexit, which I know she, she covers in, in, that, um, yeah. in that piece, but also just wider sexual narratives um, around, um, around uh, cottaging and, and what may or may not have been formerly radical and counterculture, um, especially in a place like London, which contained a lot of those countercultures. Um, so I felt that it, it had a um, allegorical function almost. Like it just kind of kept on bouncing back onto these wider right. narratives, even though it was a, um, it was a, piece about a loo, you know? Yeah. It, anyway, it was fantastic. It really captivated me. I, I, I have to say, I, I, I almost read it aloud to my husband. I liked it so much, but I did read pieces of it out loud to him. So uh, it was great. And the pho- photography is really well done too. So mm. it was quite... Amazing photos, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, on, on, a, on a future note, what are your plans and dreams for the future of the Babel, Ta- Babel Tower notice board? I pronounce it in Canadian again. <laughs> um. So, because community is such a big, big value for us, um, I'm, I'm happy with where the community is at at the moment. I mean, I'm, I'm talking purely in terms of the journal um, yeah. and what, what community means for, for Babel. Um, so we, yeah, 
I'm at the moment I'm trying to launch this letters to the editorial section. I saw that. Um, yeah, so that's exciting. So hopefully that will um generate a bit more dialogue. Um also um I'm trying to um, get some more guest editorials. Um what I don't want and what I'm worried might happen is if we stay in the place we're at at the moment for the um coming year. It will kind of become the the pretense of, of, of community. Um, like it will just become, um, if it's just dialoguing on social media, then it will just be, you know, a bit self-congratulatory, congratulatory perhaps oh, uh, right. at, at its worst. Um, and I think that's fine for now because we've just launched, but I just don't want it to stay that way. So my, my plan um, in the future is to, um, launched an interviews section um, yeah. where I will um, cajole poets into interviewing other poets. Um, we're going to, I was meant to be launching a articles section today, but um, you're doing this instead. <laughs> I'm doing this instead, honestly. So, um, so I am, um, there's a delay on that. Um, so blame Amanda. <laughs> but, um, so I'm just looking for ways to, create discussion and create dialogue. And I think the interview section will be a good way to do that. Um, the article section will be a good way to do that. Um, and in the, in the more sort of short term, uh, we've got the guest editorials coming. So to answer your question in a more coherent way, community and networks and just trying to make those connections because that was the thing. That was really valuable to me growing up in a, you know, growing up in Gloucester, like where there's um, there is a poetry scene, but um, I was interested in the avant-garde, and it was the websites and publishers of America and Canada that uh, were of real valuable to me, um, of of real value to me. So um, that that's what I'm aiming for with with being able to create something that's valuable in the in the community for for england and, and and beyond right you mentioned that actually um when we were i guess when we were exchanging emails about the um what are some of the uh the north american um journals uh, sites that uh, have uh, influenced you sure so my my interest in canadian experimental writing very much came through through America. So um, I think because I was aware of publishers like Les Figue Press, who, who remain to be a huge influence on me um, in terms of how they ground aesthetic conversations within uh, the community, which is something I'm, I'm aiming for with, with Babel. Um, and also because of the, the, the Harriet blog as well through the Poetry Foundation. Um, I don't know if people remember this far back, but there was a time when the Harriet blog used to publish like a minimum of 20 posts a day like it was just yeah. relentless what they used to do um and i i found out about um blogs like lemon hound mm -hmm. through um harriet and through um i mean cena uh, I, I believe it's kiera is it yeah yeah seen kiera another um published through Leifig, but i think because he was associated through those writing communities, I, I found out about yeah. her work uh, and, and Lemonhound through Leifig and the, and the Harriet blog. 
Um, Lemon House was a huge influence on, on Babel. In terms of the publishing model, we use um, publishing on a, on a blog model. Um, in terms of one of the things Cena did so, so well was um, be in between the lyric community and the avant-garde community. Right. And that's what Lemon Hound did so, so fantastically, being able to publish both poets, but, uh, both poets from both communities, but also being able to facilitate critical discussion from both communities as well. The, the critical dialogue that used to happen on, on that blog was, was fantastic. Uh, not to mention Cena's extraordinary uh, creative work. Um, so uh, Lemon Hound was a big influence on me as a, as a writer um, and as a, as a now uh, editor. Um, through Lemon Hound, I found out about anthologies like the Prismatic Publics anthology. Oh, that's such a fantastic anthology. Yeah. I love it. It's my, it's my favorite anthology and it's been with me um, all these years because I think it was published in 2009. But um, even though it's you know, primarily a published, uh, a, an anthology of um, lesbian feminist poetics, um, a, a guy from Gloucester could still very much connect with it because of how good those interviews are, because of um, how good the context that is offered in that anthology is. Um, I, I just really, really connected with it and it gave me a better critical language to, uh, to uh, dialogue um, with and about experimental writing. Um, and because of the Prismatic Publics anthology, Coach House generally, um, of course, are a wonderful press. Um, I mean, around this, around the sort of time period I'm thinking of, Christian Book had quite a strong presence in, in poetry anyway. So he was flying the flag for um, uh, writing constraints and, um, and sound poetry. And so that was in my awareness too, uh, as was conceptual writing right. um, more, more broadly. And, and I think if we're focusing on Canada specifically, then Darren Wurschler is a wonderful, um, wonderful poet. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to think of, of, um, of who else I'm sure like people listening to this in Canada are like, well, this is a really fractured list of, people in our community you're listing, but obviously this is um, what came across overseas. Um, and it is tied up very much with, Ameri with, with what was happening in America. Yeah. So I was following uh, Jacket 2. Yeah, Jacket 2 is, is a great, uh, it's been great. And Jacket, Jacket 2 has been, has been really helpful for me too, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fantastic. And also the Poetry Foundation were making more of an effort to um, champion alternative writing communities. So yeah. I'm, I'm sure people can remember the um, feature that Jeff Huth did, or Huth, I think, um, did on uh, visual poetry back in the day, yeah. uh, which was my certainly my first introduction to visual poetry. And um, I was aware of shape poetry and um, Gomringer and things like that. But in terms of there being a contemporary, contem yeah, contemporary, um, visual poetry that was uh that had a big impact on me as a young man and um there was somebody else i was thinking of as well oh the the feature that kenny uh, goldsmith did on conceptual writing um that um 
opened up the um, that that opened up a discussion for me certainly um, around uh, experimental writing after language poetry, uh, which was really really useful for me. Um, and this, this is all coming out of sequence, but I now remember that was how I found out about Leifig because Vanessa Pr uh, Place right. was featured in that. And um, it came through looking at, um, sort of following that lead. Um, Vanessa Place specifically did have a, a huge impact on, on, on me in terms of her um, very challenging performance pieces, shall we say, um, in terms of the uh, work she did around reading um, highly sexually uh, you know, violent uh, pieces and using her, uh, her presentation and her body to push against um, the uh, politics, for want of a better word, that, that came up through her reading those texts, not to mention the uh, recent work she's done around um, uh, provocative jokes and, and so on. So. Um, those, uh, all of this was, was very, very influential on, on me um, and on Babel's um, polyculture. Okay, so uh, I uh, the Small Machine Talks, we just uh, started a new, uh, we have a theme song now. It's our, uh, yours will be the second episode that it is played on and it mentions a bunch of uh, different things that are part of our conversation about art and literature. And what I've started to do, I, I started last time is to ask people to talk about one. So I, I give people the topics of duende, queerness, coping tea, border blur, misfits, community, secret places, ragged edges and whimsy. And I, I said to you, if you could pick one of the above and talk about it uh please do and you pick community so uh sure you've talked a little bit about that but but to keep going talk, let's talk more about <laughs> what do you have to say about that <laughs> sure um it's only in the last year that i've made peace with the idea of community i i think um sort of hinting at uh, religious environments or being raised in religious environments um and also just personally not necessarily feeling like i i fit into any sort of particular social group. Um, I always felt community was a doled up form of um, social control. Yeah. Um, and the way, it, the way it functioned was um, through value systems. So you either have these value systems or you don't, and if you don't, then you're out. Um, and this always grated against me. So being somewhat provocative, I. I always said I was I was anti-community. Um, I I wanted a I wanted a, a social model which allowed for abundance and um, diversity, and I and I didn't feel community truly gave us that. Um, thinking back to some of the Canadian and, and American presses and communities that I I just mentioned. Um, especially Lay Feig, actually, mm -hmm. um, they published, you know, Vanessa Place would do interviews around how uh, important conceptual writing was and how much she kind of hated the subjective or wanted to problematize the subjective at least. And then Lay Feig would, would um, publish poetry by Paul Hoover, you know, um, or, uh, 
Miriam Moscona's um, excellent um, collection that she published through Le Figue, which um, is, should be read by, by everybody. But it was clear that as a press, they held their, they held the values that needed to be held lightly, lightly. And the emphasis was on diversity and being supportive, irrespective of um, whether or not uh, other writers are on the same page. And from what I gather, being an Englishman, looking at um, some of the material um, in terms of, say, interviews with Vanessa Plate or, or, or Teresa Carmody, um, this seems to be something that was ingrained in, in Los Angeles's uh, writing community, um, that sense of diversity and we can all support each other. So when I was thinking about Babel and um, how to model diversity or, or, or polyculture, as, as I prefer to say, um, I started to think about community as how all people relate to each other. Um, as opposed to it being a um, strict set of social relations. Um, and once, once that fell into place for me, I started to get far more comfortable with the idea of community. So there's a, in practice, what that means is there's a, um, a journal in England called Street Cake who um, are very, very deserving of, 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 of your attention and then uh, they um say again they published me so my, oh, my visual poems yeah so when was this in the last uh, issue actually it just came out yeah i do not remember seeing that and um, i did read the last issue anyway i need to go back and... uh, it was a two volume uh, edition so there were two two uh, two um, pdf files okay yeah i read the first one i didn't get around to reading the second I read the first one, so yeah <laughs> okay I'll, I'll go back to the you just reminded me that i need to um read, read the second but in any case so in practice their definition of what experimental is might be wildly different to um what mine is and that doesn't need to be an issue in fact it's not that important the important thing is they're publishing work which uh, is diverse yeah. and is not getting uh, much voice in the major uh, British publishers and competitions. Right. So I'm going to support them on that basis because they're great and Nikki and Trini are ex yeah. extraordinary. And I just want to um, support what they're doing. So this is an example of community and practice. Right. Um, that, um, that I felt I saw uh, in, in, in publishers like Clay Feig and that I'm, I'm eager to, um, to take on myself. Um, you, you, you mentioned in the um, draft questions that uh, you, you wanted some examples. So in the same way that um, Canadians avant-garde and an experimental writing community had a big impact on me, um, I was hoping to maybe just champion um, some writers and publishers that uh, the good people of Canada can can look at if they wanted to um, know what was happening in, in Britain. Because um, certainly when I was uh, when I was younger, there perhaps wasn't many publishers 
um, championing uh, contemporary writing. Um, yeah. There was, I think, the Writers Forum was still going around. Um, I think, um, you know, they perhaps they they weren't doing work that I, I felt was super up to date. I think maybe it was still very much under the influence of uh, content poetry from the seventies. So. Um, uh, when, when I was younger, I felt that um, that work wasn't necessarily as, as vital as I wanted it to be. But we did have great publishers like Salt, um, who published uh, Matt Haig's uh, debut collection um, and penned in the margins. I've been doing great work for years now. Um, other other presses that, that um, I'm eager to, to champion, um, and I think the majority of them do overseas, uh, delivery so if they don't then um, they can take this as um as being bullied into doing it but um red ceilings press are, are really really fantastic uh sad press um <laughs> Gillamot press are very very exciting um they've published some great books this year by um isabel um galley galley Moore and um and susie uh campbell as well as uh, Jen Hadfield and um, Jasmine Nicklater, uh, which which um, are some of the best books I've read this year. I, I, I highly recommend um, people check them out, as well as Face Press. Uh, Pentarac, who I think has published uh, Christian Book and um, Lucy, is it Lucy Dawkin? For Am I getting correct? Pentarac? Sorry? Yeah. Uh, Anthony Etherin and uh, Clara Denary? But they published Lucy. Oh, okay. um, oh yeah, that I don't. I don't remember. So <laughs> uh, I think they've published a couple of, of people from uh, the, the the wider. Uh, oh, Gary Barwin. Hester Glock. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think they published Guy Barwin too. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I've published him uh, twice or once. No, yeah. They've got a book forthcoming from uh, Christian Book as well. So mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that will be, you know, interesting. Mm -hmm. But. Um, Hester Glock, our, our great publisher uh, here in uh, Bristol, um, Samson Lowe, have published some great pamphlets from um, Bryony Hughes and Aaron Kent, uh, and James Knight, um, who we featured on the, um, on the website. Uh, I also just need to single out Broken Sleep Books as a, an extraordinary uh, publisher mm. who um, are publishing a, a wide range of work um, we've, we've spoken about Barney's work and um, Barney, Barney's work already, but um, they publish, they, they seem to publish no less than a billion pamphlets a, a year. Um, and <laughs> they, they, they also do um, fundraising. So this year they raised, uh, bearing in mind that a tiny press, they raised 5,000, uh, five and a half thousand pounds for Black Lives Matter. Um, right alongside other fundraisers they've done in the past. Uh, this is a press that is um, really championing community and championing the author um, and championing diverse voices. Um, and so I, I can only, I, I can't recommend them highly enough um, if, if people want to know what's happening in, um, in, in British poetry. Um, we've, we've mentioned Street Cake um, and the associated Mums Right as well, which is Nikki uh, Dudley's uh, project, um, Experimental Writing for Mums. 
Um, so I, I highly recommend uh, people check that out. Um, and I'm sure people from your community know about Poem Atlas as well. Yes, um, Astra's, yeah. Astra's baby. <laughs> yeah, which is a, 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 a gorgeous website. Um, in terms of newer uh, journals that are worth your time, I mean, I've, I've flagged Full House Lit Mag, who I'm excited about, just because I, I know Leah's work um, and I want to see what a her and Jack come up with. But uh, there's also a, a journal that I'd like to see get more recognition called Little Stone Journal. You publish uh, a wide range of, uh, of, of, of poetry um, and also a journal uh, called Untitled Writing, which uh, frames itself specifically um, as, as for underrepresented writers. Uh, and they publish a wide range of work aesthetically, but uh, it's all got this... Um, ethos of of voices that just aren't being heard um whether queer voices or non-binary voices or working class voices or bme bame voices so um i highly recommend that they they also did a um festival an online festival uh, a month or so ago um where they did where, where they hosted some uh, really really valuable panel discussions around how we can come up with better publishing models and how we can uh, think about alternative models within publishing. And that was uh, really, really interesting to, to, to hear. Um, so I, I really can't recommend them highly enough as a, as a journal that is um, not only doing important work in England, but is also representing voices from all over the world. All right. Well, thanks. That's great. I, I don't know that I will necessarily be able to link to all of those, but uh, people will, uh, will try, I'll try to link as many as I can and uh, people will, uh, will uh, hear them. So uh, we'll, we'll make sure to mention them. That's great. Is there anything else you'd like to add in, in today's uh, conversation about uh, Babel Tower Notice Board or anything else yourself too, whatever, to, f to finish up? Um, no, um, just, just thank you for giving me, giving me this space to, um, to talk about uh, Babel. Uh, people can find us at thebabeltowernoticeboard.com. Um, our Twitter handle is babelboard, B-O-A-R-D, um, and everything can be found there. If people want to know more about, um, about, um, what's happening in Britain or if they couldn't make sense of my uh, West Country sport, um, then they can DM me or, or contact me through the website and I'm happy to um, just provide a list of uh, the presses and journals that, that I'm a reader of um, and if they follow the links, um, as in the, the leads, I mean, um, through those um, journals and presses, um, they'll they'll find out about uh, what else is happening in British write, what, uh, writing uh, soon enough. So, yeah, just contact contact me with any uh, questions and submit if you've got uh, work that is uh, naughty enough. 
All right. Thanks very much. And I, and, uh, I really do appreciate your mindful curation of, of Babel Tower Notice Board. That's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today, because I think you, you, you know, you've, you've come out uh, at a time that's a difficult time to, to, to launch anything with the pandemic and everything else going on. So it's a, it's a valuable, it's a really great, it's a really great uh, journal. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad it's, it's, it's existing. And I hope everyone uh, goes there and, and sends work and also uh, engages uh, as well with the, with the work that's there. So thanks to Richard Capener for being on the show, to Charles for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for the theme song, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episode. Stay tuned for the next episode with Gary Barwin in October, future episodes with Rosika Revolva, Clara Duplessis, Sasha Archer, Pearl Peary, and a surprise, Dennis Cooley, a really great Canadian uh, writer and a special episode on the poetic elements of music in December featuring the amazing musician Subraj Singh. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.